as we continue forward in this series, we've been talking about the idea of verses, this, these conflicts and divisions that are occurring in our culture. And there's no uh, division that occurs more dangerously than every day for most of us at lunchtime. Isn't that true? Like somebody asks you, hey, so where do you want to eat? And, and you're never quite sure how to answer that question because uh, especially if you're married, you're kind of like, well, what do you want to eat? No, no, I seriously, what do you want to eat? And there becomes this debate that can oftentimes divide because of my family. We like different kinds of things. And I have a basic rule when it comes to eating to help me out, especially at church. I only go to places that offer one kind of thing. Um, that, that helps me know they do a good job. So it's like in and out. We're good. You know, they do burgers. Maybe there's a debate to go to Five Guys once in a while, but primarily it's in and out for me. And, and then the second one is like, okay, Chick-fil-A. They just do chicken. They're not offering burgers, chicken, and tacos all in the same location. The, so I stick with that. And then there's Miguel's because It's just Miguel's. That's how it works around here. So the the reality is that, so I have this basic set of theory that if it serves one thing, it makes it simple because man, it can be difficult to pick out a place to eat with so many options and places that offer so many options. Um, You know, some of you have had similar difficulties trying to pick out a church. There's all of these options. There's so many things to consider and look at. There's so much you've, you've worked through. Some of you spent years looking. Some of you haven't landed yet, and you're still checking Olive Branch out. And we're glad you're here checking it out. But the reality is that this, this diversity of church can cause a confusion in the conversation that we're having. Last week, we talked about the fact that the church is about one thing. It's about this idea called the gospel, that God is out to reconcile humanity and that all the divisions that we see in this world are created because of sin. And God has come to solve those divisions by reconciling us to him, taking that primary division that has separated us from God and bringing us together. And so he did that through the work of Jesus Christ's death on the cross to take all of our sin and to give us all that we need to stand before God and his resurrection to give us proof that he did that. And so there's this picture then that calls us to be reconciled with God and then to reconcile others. So it was a kind of a call not only to be reconciled, but for us who are Christians to know it's our job to get this message of reconciliation out to other people that they can be reconciled to God. In the middle of that, though, that question of all those churches pops up. If we're supposed to be the ones that get in the gap of all these different divisions, be them political divisions, racial divisions, economic divisions, um, you know, whatever division you can possibly think of that's happening in our culture, I do believe we are called to be the reconcilers in those divisions. But how can we do that if we can't seem to get ourselves together? Wow, wow, what about all the divisions amongst us? What about all the seemingly sinful, evil things that we've done to divide the world as churches? How can we be the reconcilers if there's those problems? And that's what I want to address this morning. Because the church is about one thing. And the church is about this gospel of reconciliation. And I do think that we can look at this gospel and realize that that becomes an aid to answering the question, what about all these divisions that we see. First of all, I want to start with just, the, just a simple contention that maybe just in fact the gospel is the thing that's making divisions. Some of you, that you might find that uncomfortable. Others of you, you'd be like, that's right, it causes lots of divisions because you don't like the idea of Christianity or whatever. You're, you're thinking through it right now and there's some tension there. But what I want to start with is the basic fact that the gospel does make divisions and not all divisions are bad. Let's just kind of take that out of the room, right? Not all divisions are bad. 
There are some divisions we just can't, we just have to agree that exist. God, in Genesis chapter 1, created all kinds of divisions. In fact, he separated the light from the dark, named one day, named the other night. I mean, nobody running around going night is day and day is night yet, at least not yet. But the reality is that we have this separation, this division. There's sky and land. There's heaven and earth. There's man and animal. There's male and female. These are God's reality, creative distinctions. He laid it into the reality of the world. World. And then there's other distinctions, like legal distinctions that are not bad. For example, God said, don't touch that tree in the middle of the garden. God knew something about that, about that situation, and he knew what he was talking about, because when they touched it, all kinds of bad things happened when they ate from it, I mean. But the reality is, we make legal distinctions, and we're not going to let a child molester be a school teacher. Isn't that a good distinction? Just say yes. Okay, thank you. So... Make sure we're all on the same cultural page here. The reality is that, that there are great distinctions. You don't allow your children to play on a freeway, even if they want to. I want to play Crossy Road, Dad, for real. No, that doesn't work that way. And the reality is that there are good distinctions that we make. Not all distinctions are bad. There are bad distinctions. We've talked about a lot of those. Distinctions that create division of divisiveness. And so these divisions that we're looking at, I want to say the gospel makes a good first division. And that good first division is created by the gospel itself and was brought by Jesus. Notice what Jesus says as he speaks about his own mission and what he's doing. He says, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's kind of contrary to what a lot of people think Jesus is all about. But he says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, we could just stop there, and I do, but I could lift that out and say, see, God's called us to war. That's not what he's saying. Jesus will then go on to say, if you love me or if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you can't be my disciple. And what Jesus is saying is that I become supreme in the first place in, in your life. Above all of your identities, Jesus is the identity that we follow. And therefore, that creates a division in the world. It creates a division in families. It creates a division in cultures and societies. Because as we said, God views the world in two ways. There are those called human beings that are rebels. And all of us are rebels. Every human being, save Jesus Christ, have rebelled against God in one way or another. And we talked about that last week. And just a simple example that we've all lied. And we've all lied for our own personal reasons to get what we wanted. Even though we know clearly God said, don't lie. We've done that. It's this lying and this rebellion is ours. And then what Jesus has done is he came into that grand scheme of all of humanity that is in rebellion and, pre- and said, I have come to reconcile you to God. And those who were become a subgroup of that and are now divided out as those reconciled to God and those who have yet to be or, will, or have not been reconciled to God. And so there is a distinction, there is a division. And this group over here that he is speaking of is called the church. <laughs> and you're like, Greg, this is like basic 101. I, I know, but watch. What happens is this church is a group of redeemed people, of of people who have been reconciled to God from the rebels. We're all in the rebel category, and a subgroup has been brought out. Now, that causes division. It causes division in Muslim families. 
in which one person becomes a Christian and says, and they say, nope, you are no longer a part of our family. They will literally do a funeral for that child who becomes, or that person who becomes a Christian. And it's very similar in a lot of religions in that way, in that it becomes a dividing line. In my family, it became a dividing line between me and my siblings. One of my sisters, she thought I was judging her all the time now that I was a Christian because, to be quite honest, I had a little bit of it mixed up. We can get pretty arrogant sometimes as Christians. Isn't that true, guys? And we need to be careful about that because the bottom line, if you think the Christians are arrogant because we found the truth and we're saved, you know, because you think somehow we earned it, trust me, that's not how it is. A true Christian has, has one thing about them. We all know we deserve hell. And if, you, if you're exploring Christianity, that's the first thing that you have to come to realize. That a true Christian knows they deserve hell, not heaven. Because a true Christian knows that because I deserve hell, I got to have a Savior. There's no way out. There's no, no way for me to do good things enough. There's not enough church services I can go to, worship songs or hand raisings or, or baptisms or anything. No, I have to have it given to me. Jesus has to give us that reconciliation. He has to take all our sin and give us all that we need. And that's it. It has to be a gift. That's that gospel. And that's what divides people out. That's the sword. The sword is the gospel. And the gospel creates this thing called the church. And I did this because it's important for us who see all these churches out there and all these divisions out there so that we know what makes a church a church. What makes the church the church is this thing called the gospel. If a church doesn't have the gospel, they can't be reconciled to God. And if the church is those reconciled to God, it's the gospel that made them that way. Does that make sense? And so I want to tell you something. When you look out at that confusing mix, mishmash of people out there and groups calling themselves churches, not all churches are churches. Not all people who use the name church are actually churches. I'll give you an example. Mormonism, when I was a young, when I was young, we have, I've always had Mormon friends. I was in madrigals in high school, and we always had lots of people in the choir group. And so lots of friends of mine were Mormons. And early on, they would all say, oh, we're not Christians. They were very clear. They were Mormons. They were followers. Of the, they were part of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Slowly, somewhere in the 2000s, they began to shift their dialogue. They're like, oh, no, we're Christians too. We're Christians too. Today, they argue that they are very strongly Christians, and, I would, and they call themselves the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And what's interesting is I, they, they're not a church because they don't have the gospel. Their gospel is radically different. They use the word gospel. They'll talk about eternal life. They'll, Jesus dies on the cross, but Jesus is not the God of the Bible. Jesus is something else, and I'll, I'll leave that to them. I've, I've done, you can go back and look at our sermon on Mormonism, where we actually had Mormon leaders in the room listening and said, hey, can you come preach that at our church? That was really good. And the reality is that, so Mormonism, very clearly, we lay that out in that, in that message, does not believe the same gospel we do. What they believe is they open the door for you to live out a certain way so you could achieve the same things Jesus achieved. So you can be like Jesus and achieve the same levels of glory that Jesus, that Jesus had. And so their message is very different. And in that sense, they don't have the message of reconciliation to God. They have a message of human growth to Godhood. 
I was just in San Francisco the other day, uh, this last week with my family. And what's fascinating to me about San Francisco was that I, the one thing I didn't expect was on every street corner practically, anywhere there was like a lot of people checking something out, the Jehovah's Witnesses were there with their pamphlets. I was blown away. I'm like, I can't get away from these guys. They're always at the crossings or somewhere. They, they come to my house like routinely. But they were sitting there with their stuff. Every time we came around, it's like, oh, there's Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, there's Jehovah's Witnesses. And as evangelistic as they are and as passionate as they are, I think they put us to shame, quite honestly. The sad thing is they don't have, the, they don't have a gospel. Actually, what they invite you to is a community that you work real hard that maybe you'll get to be part of the 144,000 that are going to get to go on into eternity with God. Otherwise, you better work your tail off because you got to keep your salvation up in order to be right with God. Jesus isn't God. He didn't bear your sins. They don't have a gospel and they're not a church. They're not the churches you would understand what Jesus is saying here that is brought out of the world and formed. And this is important because not all churches are churches. Um, church of Scientology, not a church. Okay? Phaeton and all, it ain't a church. The church is defined by the gospel. In John chapter 17, verse 20 through 21, Jesus clearly lays it out. Actually, it starts even earlier. In verse 17, he says, He's talking to God. It's the night he's going to be betrayed. He looks at his father and he says, Father, here's my prayer for the church, that you'd sanctify them in the truth. And that word sanctify means separate them out by your truth. Your word is truth. And he goes on then in verse 20 to say, I don't ask for these only, meaning his apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a radical unity God expects of the church then. Well, not all things that claim their churches are churches. Those of us who are the church, we should be unified in a radical manner, in a way that shows off that Jesus is truly our Lord. And that radical unity is defined again by this message of reconciliation called the gospel. That you and I are reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection to make us reconcilers. Now, there's another problem. Because while not all churches are churches, some churches have stopped being churches. You see, some churches out there have compromised the gospel. They've begun to deal with the gospel and teach another gospel. Paul dealt with a church like this. It was called the Galatian church. In the book of Galatians in your Bible, at the very beginning, Paul immediately jumps in and he says, guys, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Meaning, hey, let him be put under God's curse, worthy of being thrown into hellfire. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Those are serious words, not comfortable words. I mean, it's not fun. Your pastor comes up and says, oh, that guy was preaching a false gospel. I, you know, he should go to hell. That's what Paul just wrote. That's in our Bibles. Be uncomfortable with it. The reality is that what, G, what Paul is saying is, how could somebody give you this opportunity to be reconciled to God, to be right with God of the universe, to know your maker and be unified with your maker? And then somebody else comes along and says, no, 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 really, that's not true. And divide you from God now. And that person basically leads you back into the path of rebellion. And he says, don't, we don't deal with those people 
We, we, sep- that, that's a, we, we separate from them. Let them go their way is really how he's putting it. And the reality is that's the case for many of us. Some churches have ceased to be churches. Some churches have stopped believing in the gospel. There are churches out there right now who have stopped believing that Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins. There are churches right now that just on Easter celebrated Resurrection Sunday and don't believe in a resurrection. There are forms of Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, and even Anglican that have all abandoned the gospel throughout years of their own studies and things like this and transformations. And so there is a case that some of these churches, now there are Baptist and all those, other, all those groups that are truly holders of the gospel. We'd say there are brothers. I'll get in that in a minute. But the reality is there are some people who separated themselves from us because they stopped preaching the gospel. If the gospel defines what a church is and you stop believing in that, you're no longer the church. And those churches moved away from being the church. They still hold term like church. They still gather, but many of them view Jesus as being a great example. And what's fascinating, and many agree, and many have said this, today in our culture, you and I have as an evangelical church, as a church that holds to the gospel, we have far more in common with Catholic, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox and Coptic Christians than we do with liberal churches. Because all three of those other branches still believe that Jesus was God, that he died on the cross to bear your sins and rose from the dead. Now, we may disagree on a lot of other things, like what do you do with statues and paintings on the walls and what do you do with Mary? We got all kinds of stuff to debate there. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's why we aren't Catholic and we're not Eastern Orthodox or any of those. I may like scruff, but I don't want to wear a beard. You know, the reality, and that's what you have to do in an Eastern Orthodox church, but the reality is that you have to, it's bad when you preach sometimes and weird thoughts flow through your head. I just was like, if you got to be like an Eastern Orthodox guy, man, you're totally primed for a hipster movement because they have the massive beards. Anyway, so the reality is that from practice, there are some things we separate over, but in some, but most cases in the case where they've denied the gospel, they've stopped being a church. They just have. They don't have a message of reconciliation. They're not on the mission that Jesus gave the church to be on. They don't have the message the church was given. They don't have the Savior who died to purchase his church. And so there's this reality that some of them have moved away. And then there's also the reality some churches today in the evangelical world are moving away from being the church. We need to be aware of this. This is happening under our noses right now. And where I go with this is this. You see, the gospel is powerful, but the gospel is not a license to sin. It is not a license to do whatever we want. We are saved from doing whatever we want, which is a bondage, trying to get our needs from this world to being able to be free to know God and live for him. But what happens is the church gets confused. The the Corinthian church was confused. They had changed the gospel from being free to know God and live for God to being free to do whatever they wanted. And they were endorsing all kinds of crazy sexual behavior in the church. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians and goes all over the details. And he had written earlier and he says, guys, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You go, well, time out here, Paul. How would you do that? And he goes, well, hold on a second. Not, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you need to go out of the world. He's saying, no, no, be friends with your non-Christian friends. We don't put our belief system on them. You hear me? 
Why would we expect non-Christians to live like Christians? We are in the gospel. We obey the gospel. We follow Jesus Christ. That's who we are. They're not expected to follow the gospel. They're not expected to to live under the, the rubric of what Jesus has asked us to live under. So let's not shove our values down onto other people in that manner, in that sense, is what he's saying. We're going to be associated with, we're going to evangelize, we're going to give them. But, time out here. Now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, who says they're a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And what he means is anyone who is unrepentant in these sins. Somebody who thinks, well, Jesus covered me. Sure, I'm guilty, but Jesus blessed me with his blood. I can do whatever I want. He says, don't even associate with them. They have transformed the gospel from reconciliation with God to a freedom to be a rebel. That is not the gospel. The gospel does not free us to go be rebels. It reconciles us to the God we're rebelling against. And it says, don't even eat with somebody like that. And so there are churches right now who are beginning to redefine sin and are beginning to redefine these things, claiming that certain behaviors and actions that are clearly scripturally called sin, we're cool, don't worry about that. The culture has got it right. We got it wrong. We need to change. And that's happening around us. It's happening on our Facebook pages. It's happening in our churches. And we need to be careful because that's a movement away from the gospel. You redefine sin, you redefine the problem. If there is no sin or that we can do whatever we want, there's no gospel and we cease to be a church. And so we need to remember the gospel reconciles us to God. And from there, we become reconcilers and we live out that gospel with other people. We love Christ, we live Christ, we share Christ, not for ourselves. And so clarifying this then, the church is something for real. Your church, this church, Olive Branch, should be defined by the very gospel that we're listening to. That you and I can be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his resurrection, and be made reconcilers as well. Does that make sense? Not all churches are churches. Some are moving away from the church. But what about all the flavors in the church then? I mean, come on. All these people who hold the gospel, it's so diverse and so different. And everybody's arguing with each other, it seems like. I mean, you've got, you've got black churches and white churches, middle-class churches and poor churches. You've got um, Latino churches. And then you've got over here just crazy smells and bells churches. And over there, you've got holy roller churches. You've got conga line churches. And you've got stand-up, sit-down, fight, fight, fight churches. I mean, you've got churches all over the place. What's up with this? Well, did you realize the gospel makes distinctions that allows for differences? This is the beauty of the gospel. You see, while the gospel sets us apart as a church, there's this powerful event that occurs in Jerusalem that tells us something about the gospel. It happened just after, just in the book of Acts chapter 15. And what is going on in this picture is that this guy, Paul and Barnabas, who are apostles, had gone out as missionaries into all of the nations of the Mediterranean world. They had just been preaching the gospel. They're watching people who are not Jewish come into faith all over the place. They're getting excited as the Holy Spirit shows up and works on them. They're like, what is going on here? They come back and they come to Jerusalem. They report what they do. They starts here. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, <clears throat> it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Guys, this is the most momentous event in ancient church history. The church had gathered together and they asked this one single question, is the gospel connected to a culture? If you receive Jesus, does that mean we must be Jewish and therefore live out all the Jewish laws? Do we have to get circumcised? Do we have to go take sacrifices? Do we need to pray at certain times of day? Do we need to not eat certain foods? Do we need to wear certain clothing? You see, some religions, that's exactly what they say. Islam, you must live a certain cultural way to be Muslim. Hinduism has the same concept. You must have a certain way to live to be Hindu. They have adopted a culture by the very laws of their religion. And here the church is asking themselves, is the gospel a new way of living that requires us to have a culture? They hear Peter, and Peter tells a story about this guy, Cornelius, who comes to faith. And it, just before he, he was even baptized, the Spirit of God comes on him. Paul and Barnabas tell all their stories, and suddenly a conclusion comes to James, who is a very strong Jewish man. James the Just, the brother of Jesus, stands up, who's the head of the church now. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is his conclusion, and the council's conclusion. Okay, we're not going to trouble them to live out the law of Moses. We're not going to trouble them to be circumcised. They don't have to wear the clothing we wear. They don't have to do the things that we do. They don't have to go to synagogue like we do. The gospel it's cultureless. It's beyond culture. It's above culture. And yet, he goes, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. So no idolatry. From sexual immorality. So sex belongs only in the marriage. And for one has been strangled, which actually is debated what that means. Is it because of sacrifices? Well, Christians didn't do sacrifices. So why would you care about strangled animals or not? Actually, a lot of scholars are beginning to believe this is about abortion. That, a that you should not commit abortion or put a child out for, um, for abandonment. And the words are very similar in the Roman language, the Roman stuff that we've been discovering. So I'll just put that out there as an interesting thing that's out there in debate. And finally, from blood. And blood was drank in their culture for the sake of gaining empowerment by the being that they were taking the blood from. And so the reality is these are all pagan cultural distinctions. And they said, no, 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 you're not going to take on our Jewish cultural distinctions, but you need to abandon the, the pagan cultural distinctions. So because the gospel is culture-less, but it corrects every culture. The gospel has no culture that says, that's the perfect culture, but it takes on every culture and says, this has to change and this has to change, which makes sense. If we're all rebels to God, we create rebellious cultures. No matter whether we're in a church or not, this church culture has rebellion in it because we have sin in us. Amen, church? And therefore, the gospel is not how we need to do it. The gospel is free from the culture, but it corrects our culture and shapes who we are and shapes how we live. Now, check this out. This gets me excited because this is where mission kicks in. If the gospel's cultureless, that means we engage in powerful ways to engage different cultures. Notice how Paul puts it. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not my, being myself under the law, 
that I might win those under the law. For to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, law of God but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Shows up in the Muslim culture, he dresses like the Muslim, but he doesn't worship the Muslim God. He shows up in a Hindu culture, he dresses like the Hindu, but he doesn't worship the Hindu God. Shows up in evangelical, he shows up here in Corona, and what do we do? We put lights, and we put projectors, and we dress down, and we talk in normal English, and we talk about it, because this is what connects with us. This is a cultured view of the gospel. You know what? Some cultures, they like hymns. They want to sing the hymns. They want to be connected to the church history of the hymns. And they want to sing it out loud. And they, don't, they want the organ. They don't want the flashy lights and the things. They're like, nah, I don't need that. And they want solid verse-by-verse teaching. Others want topics because they need to know what to do with that topic. See, you know, some churches, they want to run around. They want to get up in service and, and start going, whatever's going on. And they want to endorse it and they want to get up and sing and conga line while people's are preaching. Other people, you know what they want? They want, they want the same kind of, but it's all in Latin and we have no idea what they're saying, but they're going to swing and they're going to put the smells and they're going to have the bells and they're going to walk down the aisles. Others are going to be stand up Sit down, stand up, sit down, tell you this creed, say amen here, do this. Do you know if they're holding the gospel? Praise God for them. All of those beautiful flavors, you know what they are? They're cultural things. You know where the smells and bells and all that came from? came from the Middle Ages. Where the beauty and the pageantry was, was capturing the peasant mind so they could see the glory and the majesty of God amidst a very hard life. Move into, the, move into the Reformation where you sat down, stood up, fight, 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 say that creed. That was all about discipleship. People needed to know. It's not all about this, but there's something to grasp and understand. You move into our revivalist mentality as Baptists from the middle, from the middle of the 1800s. We stand up and call you to Jesus and we go through the Bible. That is a cultural distinctive to the United States. And you step over and then you move into the Pentecostal world, which is far more like what the rest of the world is going to engage in. When I go to Thailand, they sang songs, they worshiped God, they prayed differently, but it was the same gospel. When I sat, and, and they were excited, you know, you see, you, they all prayed before service. And man, these people prayed before service. It was like, everybody's mumbling, you go to Korea, they're like, they're just going for it. I went to a German church once. It was an evangelical German church, preached the gospel. I'm serious, that's how they looked the whole time. They sing that way. Um, uh, I don't know it German, so it's like, yeah, there's like, they're singing, and it's like, don't move, we might get in trouble. And my buddy, my buddy uh, Nick, who's now a missionary, he was there going like, let's do this! And people are like, what is going on? Turn that kid off? You know, it's like, <laughs> that was a beautiful reality of the cultural distinctives, because you go to a Latin American church, and they are ready to explode with energy. 
See what's beautiful about the gospel because it doesn't hold to a culture. The freshness and the joy of every ethnicity billows in the church and wafts through so that you can go to the Pentecostal church and enjoy the beauty of the fury of their passion for God. And you can go to the Reformed church and hear the wonder of the depth of their intellect. And you go to the evangelical church and get your hands dirty to go care for some people. The beauty of the wonder of God is that he has not limited the expression of his gospel to one group of people. The old song still sings true, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. He is pre- they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. The problem is when we put the minors before the majors. Yes, I'm not going to go baptize a baby because I want to baptize people who, who confess that they believe. So that's why I'm a Baptist. No, I'm, I'm not going to do smells and bells because that I, doesn't resonate with me. And, and, and so the reality is that some, we, we do separate over practice and culture. But I can go enjoy those things. And I can worship with my brothers. I will see them in heaven because they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you should be able to as well. But if we're going to get to the place where we put the minors as the majors, and we start saying that this eschatology is more important, or this end times view is more important, or this baptism kind concept is more important, or this doctrine is more important, and we put that before the gospel, that's dangerous. And that's where we need to repent of pride. Second Timothy put it this way, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And too often in the church, we've gotten involved in foolish, ignorant controversies. And you, if you're exploring churches, you're like, oh, what's up with these guys? It's called pride. We're sinful too. And you know what? If you've been to a church that told you you didn't have enough faith, and so that's why something happened to you, or if you've been to a church maybe where it was dry as dirt, and they just told you you got to get used to it, or maybe you've been to an evangelical church that just, it seemed like all they were about was the glitz and the glamour and the flash and the amazement, and it just turned you off. I say I'm sorry. It's never been the intention. Pride sometimes gets in the way and we do things the way we want to do them. But the goal has always been to communicate that you can be reconciled to God through this gospel that allows everyone on earth express its beauty and enjoy it. So I want to encourage you to not let that be a distraction, but to allow it to be something that is palatable and powerful, but also know that it shapes us still. See, The gospel will make slow corrections to a culture. Not only is it not licensed to do whatever we want, the gospel comes in and confronts every single culture. That's what's true about truth. Truth will engage everything. It endorses aspects of our culture and challenges aspects of our culture, and it will continue to do so. And so what we see is that that beauty of that reality is the gospel is shaping all of us still. And it slowly changes broader culture as much as it changes church culture. And so you're going to find times in church history where we stood up for ridiculous and evil things. Yes, the church was anti-Semitic. Born from the early 400s and had flowed through the church for many centuries on and off were preachers and pastors and theologians who tried to argue that it was the Jewish people that were at fault for what happened. And yes, it bred an anti-Semitism that was wrong and evil and should never have been preached because it was so contrary to our scriptures. 
And when World War II hit, at the amazement of what humanity could do to each other, but what you, the, 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 the thing that I want to encourage you with is that what you found was not the churches running to endorse what the Nazis were doing, but rather it was the churches that were standing against them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Neimuller, there were these men who were pastors that were called the number one enemies of the state because they were willing to preach the truth amidst this stuff. It was the Christians mainly hiding Jewish men and women in their homes. And the reality is simply that, my friends, the church has repented of anti-Semitism. In the United States and in England, for years, the has endorsed slavery, but it was a man in William Wilberforce who stood up and began to argue in the midst of Parliament that this was a sin and evil and an abomination before God that we should do these things. And he took his entire life in Parliament two days before he died. England abolished the slave trade because of that one man's work. And all the Christians who were behind him, who saw everyone of every skin color as equal in the image of God, took longer for the United States to get around to it. And sadly, churches in the South, including Southern Baptist churches, which we're a part of, stood up in endorsement of African slavery. Horrible. In the North stood abolitionists from the Mennonite movements, from all the various movements who stood firmly and resolutely. This was sin. And as the years progressed, it was clear the abolitionist movement and the Christian mindset of the gospel changed American mindset and changed in the church slowly in some places. Today, the Southern Baptist Church has completely repented of that sin to the point they wish they could just change the name to get rid of the smirk, the, the ugliness. And they invite as many multicultural people into the church as possible, one of the strongest missionary endeavors in the world. But the reality is simply this. Sometimes it takes the gospel a little bit of time to work the sin out. I'll give you a simple example of how this works in our in two different cultures. One, Christine, back when uh, who you just saw on the screen, was in Africa. And one of the first people who came to know Jesus Christ there in the country she was in was a man who was a polygamist. He had three wives, and so he had this problem. He becomes a Christian, and he realizes it was wrong, and he says, what do I do? And in the middle of the whole conversation, he said, I know divorce is wrong, and I can't divorce my wives, but how do I do this, deal with this? And, we, and there, we could be all smug as Americans go, oh, we know how to do this. But the bottom line was the Holy Spirit and the gospel had to work it out because there were going to be pastors who rose up and said it was fine. There were going to be others who rose up and said it wasn't. And there was gonna, they were going to have to work through that sin in their churches. Today, we in, in America, we need to see as more and more gay men and women come into the church as we love on them, as they come to Christ, they're going to have a crisis to work through. Because some of them have gotten married and adopted children. And if they come to the conclusion with the scripture that marriage is between a man and a woman for the procreation of a family, and they realize that that isn't, that isn't a marriage, but they have this child, what do they do? We were asked in college, if a transgender person comes into your office and says, I made a mistake, what do you advise them? This is the reality of the gospel-shaping culture. And in some cases, we've repented and moved away. We've seen amazing things in suffrage and abolition and all those pieces. In other cases, today, it's continuing to refine us and it's continuing to struggle with us and exactly on the issues of sexuality. 
See, on one, this is a complicated issue. On one side, I believe the dangers is that we are guilty of a lack of love, though we promote the God of love. We have shamed and pushed and, and we've said this is simple and we know it. And we've rightly been labeled in some cases bigots. And I want to tell you, if you're gay, you, you, can, you can come to the church and hear. But I want you to know something. While we love you and we want you to know Jesus and be reconciled to God, we stand with our scriptures. And so some churches have gone too far. They've abandoned the gospel and the truth of the scriptures to, to affirm something the scriptures can't affirm. And we have to stand with our scriptures that does say that all sex outside of the marriage of a man and a woman to the procreation of the family, the creation of the family, that it's sin. And the reality is that that truth is something we stand on because we don't want to be hypocrites. That's a label we've carried far too long. And yes, we love. And yes, we disagree. But that's how love works. And we call you to be reconciled to God above all else and work it through there because the gospel changes us. The gospel changes us slowly and works through us in slow corrections. And that's why we can be confident, though it looks like a divided world, it's not. It's the gospel that brings the beauty of all this ethnicity and all of this stuff and all of these ways that enables us to stand firm. But it's the gospel we must stand with lest we cease to be a church and just become a culture, be it American, be it another culture, Chinese, whatever. No, we're a people of the gospel. We're a people reconciled to God, not by anything that we have done, but by what God has given to us. So bring that message. Share that message. Because when you go around the world and you see the beauty of the diversity, you realize there's a greater unity than you could have ever imagined that is found in this thing called the church. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, it is one of those things that can be very difficult for us to understand, but your word is powerful and true, and it shapes us. Would you help us, please, to be a people who present that message of reconciliation the reconciliation with you. And that from there, God, other reconciliations can begin as we learn to love, disagree, but stand firm in your word because it is your truth, your word, that sets us apart. We ask for your help in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen.